Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about memorials and media. Today on the show, I am joined by the writer, journalist, and editor, Spencer Bailey. Spencer is a co-founder, along with Andrew Zuckerman, of The Slowdown, a new media company focused on culture, nature, and the future, where he hosts two of my very favorite podcasts, Time Sensitive and At a Distance. He's also an editor-at-large for Fiden and a contributing editor for Town & Country. He's also the former editor-in-chief of the design magazine Surface. Spencer also recently published the book In Memory of Designing Contemporary Memorials, a book that explores the art, architecture, and design of memorials around the world from the late 20th century to today. And this book is where we start the conversation. Spencer has a personal connection to memorial design that we talk about before discussing how memorials shape our understanding of memories, of stories, and of media. We use this to talk about how he started writing about architecture and design, his time at Surface, and his new company, The Slowdown, and how that, while not necessarily is about design, is a great example of my theory that kind of all cultural criticism is a type of design criticism. This is a really great conversation. I think Spencer has a lot to say about how we tell design stories. Heading into 2021, I'm excited to announce that we're going back to releasing episodes every week, so you'll get even more Scratching the Surface next year. And this is all made possible because of you and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this show, if you want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. In addition to the episodes, which are always free, members get an exclusive monthly newsletter written by me, as well as previews of the upcoming episodes and other kind of behind-the-scenes content. For all the details, you can visit scratchingthesurface.fm slash members. It truly means so much to me. It really helps keep the podcast going. And so if you like the show and want to see it continue, please consider becoming a member. Thank you, as always, for listening and enjoy this conversation with Spencer Bailey. new book in memory of which is about the the design of contemporary memorials and i i want to start by kind of talk about the timing of this book and the fact that it is coming out in the middle of a pandemic you've obviously been working on this pre-covid pre-pandemic and now it's coming out in a world that i imagine is vastly different than the one you thought it would be coming out in one where there is so much kind of darkness and death and people are talking about memory and memorials how has this moment these last couple months changed how you have thought about this book that you've ended up making i don't know that um it's changed how i think about it <laughs> but i i actually feel like i was very prepared for this moment mm. in a way that I would not have been had I not written the book. <laughs> and, you know, I spent the better part of uh, two years re researching, reporting, and writing about mass atrocity, terrorism, genocide, um, death. And, and um, it was not just about those things explicitly, of course, it was about how we remember, how we think about, how we deal with uh, and cope with those things. But 
obviously, you know, I'm waking up at five in the morning pretty consistently <laughs> and, and writing about pretty dark, heavy material. And then I wake up one morning and we're in a global pandemic. <laughs> Literally, like the, the week I turned in the copy for the book was the week before New York City went into lockdown. So let me, okay, let me ask you a, a, like a different version of the question, and then we can kind of talk about some of the big ideas of the book, but um, maybe maybe less how this moment has changed how you think about the book, but has, has this moment changed how you think about the kind of general thesis of the book or the ideas about why we are culturally um, and and globally in a way so interested in this idea of constructing memorials and monuments mm -hmm. and and memory does this moment does this pandemic which is global change any of that thesis or change any of the ideas that you were hoping to communicate in the book well i think a distinction to bring up um, early in the conversation which is important is that between a memorial and a monument mm -hmm. and and these are blurred lines that have have um, really kind of lost meaning over time. You know, um, monuments, though, are typically statues related to war and politics. They're celebrating things like victory over another nation or about valor and standing up for your rights. They're about, you know, kind of they're about statesmen. They're about soldiers. They're typically about men, typically white men. Um, memorials, on the other hand, tend to be spatial and abstract. They're about recognizing hardship, about sacrifice. Um, they go into more kind of contemporary issues of trauma and survival and terrorism, in, you know, as in the case of 9-11. So I think it's important to kind of talk about those separately. I think that obviously they're connected, um, but that they are, they should be distinctive. Um, they should be understood yeah. as distinct things. Um, the, the most interesting thing to kind of come out of the past, um, let's say eight months since the pandemic really began in full force here in the United States, um, is probably the social and cultural um, uh, results of the pandemic, like like how it has shifted our culture, and 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 made things more acute. I think that you know we're right. now understanding post George Floyd, for example, uh, racial injustice in this country in a way that maybe we weren't before. Um, Mm -hmm. These memorials, though, can cause us to think that way quite similarly. Like if every if every American was required to go visit the Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery and understand the history of lynching in this country, I think we would have a very different country. This book comes from a from a very personal place, and I'm not going to ask you to kind of recount that story. I think you've done that beautifully in the introduction of the book. You did that on the Time Sensitive podcast. I have a feeling every interview that you do about this book is going to ask you about that. Um, the short summary and, and like, you know, jump in if I, I kind of, 
you know, summarize this wrong is that you were in a plane crash when you were a child uh, with your brother and your mother and your mother, along with 111 other people um, died, you and your brother and, and a group of other people survived. And there's a photograph of you being kind of carried away uh, from that accident that has been turned into a statue that is kind of at the site. And so you've had to kind of wrestle with this and think about this um, your whole life. And, and this kind of sets up the trajectory of the book in many ways. And a lot of the questions that you ask about in the book, did I, did I kind of give that story? Um, <laughs> that, that was, uh, uh, almost everything was accurate. I, I would, I would clarify that the, the site of the memorial is on the banks of the Missouri river in Sioux city, okay. I, Iowa, which oh, is, right, right. which is um, separate from the right. runway where it took place. But um, yeah, everything else was accurate. And what's sort of interesting about this entire experience is that it really has to do with media. Um, and I'm sure we'll get into this in this conversation today, but, uh, you know, media controls so much of the narrative of how we remember. And I think we forget that because we end up seeing these, these, these uh, big constructed, you know, pieces of art and architecture, but they all started from uh, flimsy pieces of paper and newsprint. Right. What you talk about in the introduction is this kind of weird distance that you feel with that place and with that and that that it is you and you you use this to talk about two things which I think are the big themes of the book and one of them is this move from kind of the the literal or the kind of really visual to something that is more abstract which I want to talk about in a bit. But the other one is this kind of idea of who gets remembered, and this is what you were just starting to talk about uh, in regards to memorials and monuments, who gets to be remembered, why, how, um, who gets to tell this story, whose story is this? Um, something that I talk about a lot on the podcast is this idea that design is ideology made artifact, that it's kind mm -hmm. of taking ways of seeing the world and making them concrete. And I think memorials are actually a really interesting example of that, that I had never considered before. And it is this idea of media where it starts to take on its own story that is sometimes separate from the kind of people who actually were there. And I'm interested in how you think about that, how you think about this being a place where mm. this question's getting big. But what I'm what I'm trying to say is like, this is something that we go to, you know, people go and see these. Uh, sculptures, pieces of architecture, land art that are meant to be memorials that sometimes we don't always have a personal connection to. Mm -hmm. And we feel something. But then there are people who go who do have a personal connection to or who were there, like, you know, like, like your story and, and, and that memorial. And they were designed by someone else, uh, you know, that are sometimes changing the story whether consciously or unconsciously and how do we articulate all of that balance you know this idea of like the collective and the personal and whose story is this and how do we tell that story as you visited these places and you visited about half i heard you say in another interview and as you started putting this together how did you think about this and how did you think about your place in that is now you're kind of telling some of that story so immediately what comes to mind is that during the research of this book um i read susan sontag's book 
regarding the pain of others. And um, it's a book length essay that goes deep into um, ideas about how we look at others who are going through pain or trauma or suffering. And in that book, she talks about how these images can take on a life of their own. And that's certainly the case of what happened with mine. And I have no idea, you know, who in Sioux City decided to make a a bronze statue uh, depicting my three-year-old body being carried, but somebody did. Um, Nobody checked with my dad. Nobody checked with me. I mean, and if they (laughs) did check with me, I was a four-year-old. So like, what would I say? Um, And, you know, over time, I've just been so confounded by what it means to be memorialized. I've, I've, I've sat and wondered, like, what does this mean? Like, and I've really wanted to get away from being famous or known for for being the little boy down by the river in the statue. Like, that has yeah. not been an identity that I wanted to attach myself to. I, 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 I've, I've tried to avoid the victim message, the the sort of (laughs) survivor definition. And we look at survivors in our culture in awe. Like it's like, it's, it's, you know, survivors literally get put on pedestals. And in my case, um, you know, I was put on a pedestal as a statue. I mean, right. Right. Like if, if, you know, the Missouri river flooded tomorrow, which it still, by the way, does flood fairly often. (laughs) Um, (laughs) that statue would still be there underwater or, you know, it's going to be around forever. And what does that mean? Um, So, you know, it's thinking about that and thinking about what that narrative means, the hero story, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a plaque nearby that defines it as a, 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 I think it says a symbol of strength, compassion, and unselfish commitment. Well, what about that image makes it worthy of that you know i now realize that it fails to achieve that and it took really the writing of this book uh to unpack it in a global context and to also understand um you know art and design and abstraction in a way uh that allowed me to be able to articulate what what actually the issue was, and the issue was that the child being carried motif is a biblical image effect. Right. It is. Right. It's, it's, it's projective of this hero story, but not reflective of the tragic event. And so that's why I don't see myself in it. Um, and it's why when I went back to Sioux city uh, in fall 2019 with my brother, Brandon, who had been on the plane with me that we visited that site and both of us were kind of like, eh, like yeah. <laughs> no, it, yeah, we yeah. didn't feel anything. His his name is not at the site, nor is the name of anyone else who is on that plane other than me, and right. not even the pilot, Captain Haynes, who who helped steer the aircraft to the ground and saved my life. Like I wouldn't be talking to you right now on this podcast <laughs> right. were it not for him. And so, why do all these myriad experiences get ignored? for this projective hero message. It just doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I would love to one day see my mom's name at that site. 
I would love to see the name of the 111 other people who died. I, I think that it's important that we don't forget them. And instead, it's a statue with a plaque, a second plaque, by the way. There was one, one plaque from the inauguration, and then they installed a second plaque to try to help describe it further, basically saying it's based on a photo by this photographer, Gary Anderson, who's a white guy. Um, it's a statue by Dale Lanfear, who's a white guy. He's being carried by Lieutenant Colonel De- Dennis Nielsen, who's a white guy. And by the way, the, it's a little three-year-old white boy. So it's like, what, what, you know, why do we live in this culture in which we all think it's okay for just, you know, putting white men on pedestals? And that, that is the conversation that's, that we're now starting to see happen. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see, um, this statue in the, in the full context of confederate monuments i'm not i'm i'm, right, not, I'm right. not trying to say that and i think that there was probably some really great intent underlying this that the community itself went through an enormous trauma and tragedy and they also had to find a way to heal and this memorial was a way of them doing that of showing the strength of this like really incredible midwest community you know just a month mm-hmm. before a month or two before the accident they had actually run a mock plane crash at the at the airport. Oh, wow. Yeah, at the airport. And so they were incredibly prepared. It was an incredibly wow. prepared and resilient situation. And I think they saved uh, many, many lives by by being prepared and by being this incredible tight knit Midwestern community. I'm I, I am the one of the kind of arguments that you make in the book that I think directly connects to what you're talking about is this move from the kind of literal, the representational into the abstract. And the the memorials that you feature in the book are all kind of abstract. They're more emotive. They're less this, they are not, you know, boy being carried away in the kind of biblical image. Mm-hmm. And I have two questions around that. Mm-hmm. Um, one is kind of... W- how you arrived at that as a framing and and how that kind of connects to to this kind of disembodied monument that you see of yourself uh and then two how how you think about that kind of abstraction being something that can kind of open up these stories mm-hmm. in some way so how does that relate to kind of you and your own story and then how does that connect to this this larger conversation we're having around you know, collective memory and, and whose stories get to be told. Mm-hmm. So the statue we've been talking about, which is called the Spirit of Siouxland, is the centerpiece of this memorial site in Sioux City. But when you, when you arrive, there's actually a sort of um, uh, semi-abstract uh, mm. procession that's quite nice. There, there's a series of... Um, uh, seven large stones and eat affixed on each of the stones is a brass plaque with phrases from the rescue workers um, that were pulled mm. from, from the press um, talking about the resilient spirit of the community. Um, and, and so there is this sort of abstraction as you enter the site and you understand that it's commemorating something and that something took place something very powerful and profound and 
challenging and difficult took place and that there was there there was a uh, a strong resilient response to that so i think that there is some level of specificity meeting abstraction there that is intriguing and interesting it's just unfortunate that they decided to make the centerpiece this literal figurative right. statue um i think it's also worth mentioning when i went back last fall with brandon that we visited runway 22 where the plane had crashed mm-hmm. and it was one of the most profound experiences of my life uh mm. Even now, I think about it, and it gives me pause. Um, I imagine Brandon might say the same thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we were we were both um, unaware that there was still this remaining section of runway twenty two, and um, when we were back in Sioux City, we went to the local. Um, uh, aviation and transportation museum which has a small exhibition on flight 232 and next to that museum which is in a um which is in a hangar uh mm. is the runway and we and he and i walked up and down the length of the runway that's remaining mm-hmm. and aesthetically it was really fascinating because they had the city has left it there uh without really doing much to it and so time has revealed cracks in the asphalt Mm. and these weeds have been kind of growing up through the cracks and Mm -hmm. so it kind of created this very um evocative scene and i just couldn't help but think if <clears throat> I couldn't help but think if there was a f- I couldn't imagine a more fitting metaphor right yeah you know to to this idea of growing past lingering trauma than these weeds growing through the cracks and walking down that runway and back slowly with Brandon um, will be an event of my life that I just will never forget yeah, yeah. I mean I can't imagine I want to also clarify on the subject of, of memorials that I'm certainly not the first uh, to do to do a book on the subject. Um, you know, in researching the history and culture of, of 19th, 20th, and 21st century memorials, what I realized was that most of the texts and the subjects have tended to focus on specific types of memorials or monuments. So Confederate monuments, Holocaust memorials, the National Mall, 9-11. Right, right. And there's incredible academic scholarship on those subjects. Like I, I referenced several great university <laughs> yeah. press books in the introduction. There's um, uh, James E. Young's The Stages of Memory, which for anyone interested in memorialization should read. Um, he's also just a leading scholar um, on memory studies and uh, memorials. He was on the um, jury of the 9-11 memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also a great book uh, by Erica Doss called Memorial Mania that looks specifically mm-hmm. at memorials in the United States and how we are a nation obsessed or awash in memorials. And I'm, I'm really indebted to that work. That work gave me the framework 
from which to make the book. Um, I think it's worth noting um, that while there is all this scholarship, there was not until now a global survey exploring yeah. contemporary memorial making. And, um, you know, one of the best um, pieces I came across of writing on this subject was a 2002 essay by Michael Kimmelman in the New York Times, where right. he wrote about how minimalism and abstraction have um, almost sub rosa become, you know, the the contemporary way of memorializing, um, and and that really kind of helped serve and became the the focus of of my book. Um, so, you know, I gave significant thought to these subjects and typologies, and I wanted to keep, you know geographic diversity as a part of it. I wanted to emphasize the blurred lines between art and architecture. I thought all of that was really important. What What's interesting about the book, and I want to kind of use this to kind of talk about your larger work in some way. And, and But what was really interesting in looking page after page in the book is how they they are a blend of sculpture, of landscape, of architecture, of graphic design, of typography. They are they are really kind of total works of design in some way. And I think, you know, in a way, this fits a lot of your work and, and the kind of writing that you've done about design. And so you, you were the editor-in-chief at, at Surface Magazine and you know, obviously a, a design publication. Where did your interest in design come from? How did you kind of arrive at this subject as a as a kind of intellectual interest? Yes, like all of this book is really a culmination of of a lifetime um, of of this incredibly um, you know at times surreal or unreal experience of of, of surviving a plane crash to then. Um, <clears throat> kind of finding my way into becoming a design uh, focused uh, editor and journalist, although I would say um, part of my uh, background is that I am first and foremost an editor and journalist. I do not look or think about myself as a design journalist. Um, Mm. I actually am a journalist first. Um, And then like, you know, my interest in journalism really happened in high school studying fiction and poetry. And then in college, um, I went to Dickinson College in in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, um, realizing that I was never going to make a living writing fiction or poetry. Um, Like, and if I was, I had to just be like, so gung ho about it. But I just, you know, I I, I knew I needed a different outlet. And I eventually ended up working at my college's alumni magazine. Um, it was there that I met this incredible editor, Sherry Kimmel, who became a mentor of sorts as well, really showed me the ropes. I, I had a few professors who made me also um, basically realize I wasn't that good of a writer. <laughs> and and, and if, I wanted, yeah. if I wanted to become one, I really had to push myself. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, two of them in particular, Carol Ann Johnston and Susan Parabo, um, Susan's an incredible novelist. Um, they they both completely reshaped my abilities as a writer. Um, so I was mm. I was really able there to learn the craft of of writing a story of writing story. Period. And you know, in terms of early design education, I I wasn't really thinking along those lines. But over time, I've realized I have some memories on that front, like several objects in my dad's house. 
like he, he had he had he had the uh the classic Richard Sapper Alessi tea kettle you know there were other things like like his Toomey briefcase or his Montblanc his Montblanc pen um he had this really ugly gaudy gold Bulgari watch sorry dad yeah. uh, uh <laughs> These just these stood out to me above everything else. Like I could tell that they were made at a level of craftsmanship that was so much beyond the other objects around me. And yeah. so that was like kind of formative um, in terms of understanding why something that's just made more thoughtfully and better will stand the test of time. And then um, and then there were my dad's cars. <laughs> mm. Well, at any given moment, he had probably like 10 cars. And oh, geez. our driveway looked like a used car dealership. <laughs> but the cars, the cars I especially loved that he had were these 1980s Toyota Land Cruisers. And mm. um, I loved them because of their utilitarian quality, but also the fact that they could just last. So anyway, that that's sort of like I didn't have any design background. I did not grow up in a stylish house or um, you know, but there there were these signifiers that that I think over time have gotten me to thinking about that and well well where did the maybe maybe a better question is where the word design came into your life or and I want to come back to something that you said which I agree with that you you are not a design journalist necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um but you know, was that at surface that that kind of design became a focus, or that this word design seemed like a container to hold uh, a lot of the things that you are interested in? Yes, um, for sure. I would say that, given reflection, I've been able to think about um, how, in fact, um, my graduate school experience uh, is really where design came into the picture. So, you know, I had, um, I arrived in New York City after graduating from Dickinson in September 2008. And the day after I signed the lease on my first apartment here, Lehman Brothers collapsed. <laughs> so I was basically like, you know, I, I had big idealistic dreams. I'd previously yeah. interned at HarperCollins. I'd, I'd spent some time working for the alumni magazine. I'd worked for a music news website in London. I'd um, interned at a literary agency in New York. Um, mm. So I felt like I'd built up a decent resume, but you know, I was still a 22 year old kid in New York <laughs> without a job entering the worst recession in decades. <laughs> yeah, so like, yeah, yeah. I eventually finagled my way into this um, paid internship apprenticeship at Esquire, which trained me for a big office environment was like a, a good sort of ground for that. And during that time I got into Columbia journalism school and I kind of applied on a lark, like not really thinking I would get in, but I did. And, and it seemed like a really smart thing to wait out the recession and, and go and, and yeah. get the reporting chops that as an English major undergrad, um, I just didn't get. Right. And so when I got there um, at the time, I don't think they do this anymore, but they had this intro to reporting and writing class called RW1. And... I was assigned the beat of gentrification. I had no idea how fortuitous that would be. Like, 
That beat was my entry point into design by writing about the intersection of culture, society, race, and urbanism. And it led to my first clip in a national newspaper, the New York Daily News. (laughs) And it was a story about how cupcake shops, uh, like, remember, this was the fall of 2009. <laughs> yep, so yep, yep. There's a story about how cupcake shops were contributing to urban development and gentrification. And yeah. Harlem was opening its first cupcake shop at the time. So there, you know, there were already mm. like 40 some cupcake shops across Manhattan. And um, so, yeah, I guess you could mm. argue I came to design through cupcakes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, okay. Uh, that's a hard question. That's hard for me to now ask my next question. <laughs> I mean, in in a weird way, that actually kind of explains a lot in in the way you approach your work. And one of the big things I think, and I've heard you talk about this before, um, that you did when you were at Surface, is kind of really change the the lens of what that magazine could be or what that kind of editorial framework could be as something that was kind of solely focused on design to kind of opening up and thinking about the larger world and how design influences that which is the cupcake story mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and i'm but can you t- can you talk about that transition and what that was like of kind of uh you know taking this magazine that was that was fairly well known in design circles and really thinking about mm-hmm. you know less about hey we're talking to other designers we're going to talk about design we're going to talk about objects and you know blah 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 and actually kind of look at how this maybe lives in the world and how this actually is influencing things what is the kind of larger angle here sure. how did that what 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 how did you kind of come in and make that change and then what was that like in the process i kind of came to that experience wanting to explore areas that did interest me and I've always been interested in art I've always Mm -hmm. been interested in business and commerce and design really is the intersection of those two things and so while I barely knew what design was I already was engaged and interested in the world of design even if I didn't think of it in that sort of box and so I was an outsider coming in like I remember um, when I got an interview with with Dan Rubenstein, who was the editor in chief at the time, I could I could name maybe five architects, like <laughs> yeah, and and two of them, um, Zaha Hadid and Frank Gehry, I would later interview for the covers of Surface. So like yeah, yeah, <laughs> it was crazy. yeah. like I I owe a lot to Dan because he really took a chance on me at a young age and hired me, knowing that I was just an extremely curious journalist who could write a decent narrative and maybe my lack of design knowledge could be an asset like right. maybe in this insidery navel gazy world of design i might be able to say things that others aren't and um yeah. so i kind of soon discovered i did have a knack for distilling like the value of good design to a broad audience and i think we really did shape and grow that surface audience over my time there um, yeah, I should say though that like I never imagined I'd become editor, especially right. at age 27. And it happened through a change of ownership. It was a pivotal moment for the company and ultimately for my career. 
Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to clarify as you were telling that story that you started, uh, you didn't come in as, as editor, you, you started some, somewhere else or started at another position and then, and exactly. then became yeah. editor. I want to make sure that I, um, talk about the fact that, you know, one of the things that was important to me at surface and it was sort of my first order of business as editor, um, was to, to take um, what had been a magazine that looked at the quote design world and really mm -hmm. um, recast that as as a magazine that looks at the world through the lens of design. Right. And right. Um, there was nobody better, I realized, than Ian Schrager to to mm. sort of encapsulate that at the time. Um, he's a hotelier. I mean, he he connects to so many worlds, architecture, interior design, hospitality, art, food, fashion, nightlife, culture. And I felt like he had this high level of sophistication and taste, but he also didn't take himself too seriously. And so there was this amazing mix of of like everything I kind of wanted sort of to capture in one person. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that's why Ian was the first cover. And it, everything kind of snowballed from there. And, you know, I never imagined during my tenure we would have Kanye West and Solange Knowles on the cover, but we mm -hmm. did. Or that, mm -hmm. or that I would be able to get the like hermetic Peter Zumtor to come out of his <laughs> right. atelier right. and come on the cover and come fly to New York and do a talk at the Guggenheim. Like these were things that happened that were just a dream. So, and all that said, like there was also a period of time where I did some reporting for the New York Times magazine mm -hmm. and I think it's it's worth mentioning the um, the first assignment I ever got from them, which was to spend a night at Zuccotti Park with the sleepers. Um, and this was during Occupy Wall Street. Um, and I, I it's funny, I, I didn't really consider this design reporting like until thinking about it more recently, but it, it really is. It was how public space gets used, the lines between public and private, the role of protest and gathering, the sociological significance of what Wall Street means as a neighborhood. So for that job, I shadowed this Israeli photographer, Nadav Newhouse, who told me to meet him at the Red Sculpture near Zuccotti Park. Mm. I, <laughs> I, didn't real, I didn't realize it at the time, but he was talking about Noguchi's Red Cube. Um, right. And it's so funny how Noguchi connects to so much of my life and career in New York, and maybe we can touch on that. But, but uh, Nadav and I met at 9 p.m. and spent the night with the sleepers. Like I was up with him till 9 a.m. the next day. It was exhausting. Delhi coffee was definitely involved mm. at some point. But, mm -hmm. um, around 4.30 a.m. in the morning, we, we found what we'd been looking for, which was in a nearby McDonald's. <laughs> so it wasn't mm. actually in the park. It was in the periphery of the interesting. park. Interesting. And yeah. it, oftentimes the scenes that you see on the periphery that are the most interesting. And that's yeah. what I also discovered like through a lot of my reporting and writing is it's like, don't look where everybody else is looking. Look on the periphery. And... I knew that as soon as I saw that scene, that it was so subtle and it spoke spoke volumes, and I, I just knew it would be what the Times would run in the end, and, and they did. And it, it, we came across this twenty-year-old black woman with a shirtless, nineteen-year-old white guy. They're standing in line. They had a blanket wrapped around the two of them. Behind them in line were these young, like dressed-up Wall Street types coming back from clubbing or some fancy night out or whatever, and. It was just such a contrast. And the irony 
of course, was not lost on me that these protesters, who, by the way, were protesting big banks and corporate America, were ordering chicken fingers and fries from one of America's largest corporations. It was, it was, right. you know, and the woman, um, I think her name was Cor. She was the daughter. <clears throat> she's the daughter of a former NYPD officer. So, mm. and she had told me her dad had been on the Freedom Riders bus. She was working at AutoZone to pay her way through art school. And she told me that the guy who was with her, this guy, Brandon, had lost his virginity in the park that day. Mm. Not, not to her, she said. She was like, I'm just to clarify. And, 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 you know, and Brandon, um, who was like tipsy after having a few Four Locos, confirmed that he had lost his virginity in the park that day. And then I later had to get confirmations from several other sources, which was like the most strange, bizarre thing to fact check. Yeah. But B- yeah. Brandon, it turned out, had been a runaway from home. And we discovered this through posts on his, from his mom on his Facebook page. And he had bruises. He'd been beaten up by police. But honestly, some of those bruises also seemed self-inflicted. So it was a very, you know... I mean, he described himself as a vampire slash anarchist. His statements were not the easiest to corroborate. Like, it was just such a trip to report that story. And it defied all expectations. It told this yeah. really human story. Like, you could not have made this up. And yeah. I mean, you could have made it up, but it would have required a huge, right. huge imagination. But it was true. And so, right. you know, what that story kind of taught me was the power of nuance and of understanding and of, and, and, and what comes with deep reporting, what comes with staying up till four thirty in the morning and going into the McDonald's and finding this scene and understanding how it connects to these much larger, mm-hmm. you know, social conversations. Mm-hmm. And effectively that's what I was doing at surface. This and- is actually a nice way to connect a little bit to, to so much of the work that you're doing now, because I think while you were at surface, I, I think actually what you were talking about earlier about being a journalist first and, and design is just a part of that. That comes through um, in the work and, and your time at Surface. And I think, you know, you, your interests kind of emerge. I think the kind of business and commerce side is very clearly there and the things that you wrote and the people you interviewed and, and the editorial direction at Surface, I think interest in architecture. I think there's an interest in fashion of yours that kind of comes through. Mm -hmm. I think there's an interest in food that kind of comes in and that under the surface umbrella, all of those kind of fit together, even if we might not think of food or chef or restaurant as design specifically, uh, it still kind of fits as design. And what's so interesting to me about you and your work and especially the slowdown uh, which is the new media company. I guess it's like two years old around at Just this about, point. Just about, yep. Uh, that you started with uh, the photographer, Andrew Zuckerman. It's all of those things also. <laughs> um, it's like, it feels very much like a continuation of that work and a broadening of that work and a deepening of those interests that kind of were fermenting in, in the, the surface time. But design becomes secondary, perhaps. Um, Spot on. <laughs> so okay good because that was that's what my question was going to be is I, i'm i what i find so interesting about talking to you is is we have very similar interests but i come to it from a a kind of deep design education and academic experience and you come to it from a, a writing journalism experience and i never know if when i kind of 
approach these things, I, you know, just have this theory that all kind of cultural criticism is design criticism mm -hmm. in a way. And is are there all of these mm -hmm. stories are really design stories. And when I listen to Time Sensitive and At a Distance, your your podcasts with the slowdown, I think of them kind of as design podcasts. And so my question for you is, can you just for listeners who don't know, talk about what the slowdown is mm -hmm. and then talk about how design is a part of that mission. I mean, the slowdown for us, it was really built out of a mutual frustration. Um, you know, as you mentioned, a Andrew does take pictures. He's a photographer, but he's also an artist, a filmmaker, a creative director. I, I don't know that he would identify himself as any of those things, but, you know, we had both been looking at um, media and frustrated, like, wanting to believe that there could be a healthier, more sustainable way for bringing together all these disparate thoughts, like, and do so in a way that's like deep, but comprehensible. So, so br bring together art, economics, philosophy, design, architecture, politics, science, technology, like those don't need to be separate conversations. And in fact, the, the, issues an architect is thinking about very often are quite similar to what an economist might be thinking about. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so we just wanted to create context and clarity around a lot of these issues. And we sort of created a triangle um, diagram of the three most pressing or relevant issues of our time in our minds, which is culture, nature, and the future. So mm -hmm. it was sort of like organizing all of that, but, but really it stemmed out of this idea of looking at the slow food movement and understanding mm -hmm. that, you know, if we thought about our media, similar to how we think about our food, like, you know, where your food <laughs> right. comes from, how your food is made, enjoying the food that you consume, eating slowly. Um, you know, I think that you can mm -hmm. apply this idea to media. Like we need media that allows people to slow down, to turn inward, to think a little bit more deeply, you know, yep. people will take the time to consume something that's really well made and it will make them feel better because that play, that thing came from a place of great integrity and of intent. Like the reporting was done. The story was fact-checked. Everything was done to a level of quality that's expected by a person who cares about what they're consuming. Like, yeah, I really love this um, Chinese notion of qi, like mm. the idea that energy is embedded in everything. Like if you consume mm -hmm. shitty media, you are going to feel like <laughs> right. shit. And right. if you take in something that was thoughtfully and consciously prepared, you're going to feel much healthier. Like, I'm not saying that media, like, I'm not saying that it has to be the media equivalent of eating at Noma, but it should <laughs> right. be tasty. It should be of quality ingredients. It should not be rushed and flash fried. And most of us right now are eating rushed and flash fried food. We, we should think about media in the terms of our health. Like so many of us are just binging on the media equivalent of Big Macs, fries, and a Coke <laughs> every day, right. but we don't, right. but we don't think about it in those terms, unfortunately. My sense was, you know, that you were interested in these things at surface, but just, you know, with the, the like the grind of the magazine and all that, it's like the slowdown is a way to actually go deeper on all of these subjects that you were interested in. I'm interested in where you think design fits into 
the slowdown and the conversations that you're having on the slowdown. And you're, you're kind of saying design is a part of all of this, but do you see these as shows about design or do you see design as a component here? It's funny. It's like, I almost don't want to use the D word, you know? I know. I know. It's like, it's like, um, I feel on some level that, uh, that we're better off bringing designers onto the show, but, but calling them something else. Um, Mm. and, Oh, interesting. And I only say that because I feel like design currently has this rap that it's, um, almost like something inaccessible to many and, Mm. and, I think that that relates to media and publications and, you know, I, I realize I'm saying this as a former design magazine editor, um, but I, I think that uh, design can and should be part of the larger discourse, but um, that it should be embedded within. So, you know, notice earlier I said culture, nature, and the future. I, I didn't say art, architecture, design, fashion, and technology. Um, right. You know, I think that we try to, as a culture, identify things or put things in boxes that's in a way that's really unhelpful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that, you know, when you, when you look at how um, disciplines can transcend, it's really unhelpful to describe most people as this or that. Um, right. You know, and, right. And, you know, for time sensitive, our, our podcast, uh, that's sort of a profile show of leading minds. That's what we describe them as like leading minds. Um, we do say business, the arts and beyond, but the idea is that it's really about the beyond. It's like, mm. you know, <laughs> these are people contributing to the larger conversation and they're concerned with the planet we all share. And in this moment of, um, you know, a climate crisis, a climate emergency, whatever you want to call it, I think that everybody is a human on this earth. We're all on what Buckminster Fuller would call spaceship earth. And like, I think it's really important to, to think about how tiny, you know, we all are these little specks on this big planet and the importance of understanding our relationship to the planet. And I think time is such a uh, sort of brilliant conceit in which to explore that. Yeah. Um, and time is a subject that has, you know, gotten, uh, you know, everyone we've had on the show so far has really been able to, to talk about their lives in a way that goes so much deeper because it's through this lens of time. It's not through this lens of, of their career or their profession. Um, but it's talking about very specific visceral moments in time. Right. Right. You know, and I think at a distance obviously is incredibly influenced by, you know, Stuart brand and the whole earth catalog Mm -hmm. and, and looking at our world and our planet and this pandemic at a distance. Right. And it's interesting. We started this conversation talking about how your book came out at a like strangely fortuitous time. Uh, and in a way, I feel like the same is true of the slowdown. It's not like I think not lost on me that we're (laughs) a company called the slowdown in a global slowdown. It's a very strange 
peculiar. And, and, and so my my question is kind of what the first question of this conversation was: is how how has this moment to kind of bring this full circle in a way? Yeah. How has this moment changed, or has it changed at all? the the mission or the goal or the approach of what you're trying to do with the slowdown now that everybody is kind of thinking about this and is forced to slow down and you know this is something that is is much more top of mind than it was when you started it two years ago yeah um well you know, it came it came out of this feeling uh, that we were all just going at this untenable pace, mm-hmm. and that a slowdown was imminent. Like it was going to happen. It it, it could have been a pandemic. It could have been environmental mm-hmm. disaster. I mean, we have multiple slowdowns going on right now. We're just all we're all <laughs> yeah. just very focused on this big global one right, right, that's right. impacting all of us, um, and that's you know killed nearly a million people on Earth. Like, I, I think that it's important to understand that uh, there are other forces that are going to force us all to slow down, um, and mm-hmm. that this is part of. You know, this is not us creating a movement. It's us looking at a movement and various movements that are happening all over the globe, big and small, and trying to create a hub through which to explore, talk about, and connect the the disparate and various ideas um, that are kind of bubbling up to the surface. And so I think that that's, that's in large part what we're doing and thinking about is is how do we you know, how do we bring clarity uh, to these things and how do we do so in a way that's going to engage people deeply? And, um, right. you know, one of our one of our ways of doing that is uh, through the five senses. So we've, we've also mm-hmm. created this weekly newsletter that's structured and mm-hmm. organized around see, touch, hear, taste, smell. And it's sort of this idea of like making the digital physical and the physical <laughs> digital. And yeah. And getting people to engage with speed and cadence and pace in their life in a way without being prescriptive. We're not telling people how to live. We're giving, we're, we're kind of just providing really interesting thoughts, ideas, and, and putting, um, you know, people whose um, perspectives on the world we think need to be heard. Um, but yeah, I, I'm definitely thinking about those things and, and design writers I've always liked and, and people in the world of design that I've, I've always admired tend to be those that reach outside the bounds that reach beyond the like, kind of like really didactic, uh, navel gazy kind of descriptions of what design is or isn't and actually show that design is everywhere and it and it's embedded in practically everything and impacts everything we see touch and do Mm -hmm. yeah i mean we can't see each other right now but i just have the biggest smile you i agree with that (laughs) um a hundred percent i have two final questions these are the two questions that i use to end all of these conversations um we talked about the book that that you know just came out We've, we've talked about kind of the work with the slowdown what's next for you what are you kind of thinking about what's what's top of mind for you right now or what are what are you what are your kind of future future plans um 
slow down, slow down, slow down. Uh, <laughs> right. No, I mean, it's really the, the bulk of my focus is um, on building this company with Andrew. Um, you know, we do some client work on the side to make it work um, mm. financially. And we, uh, but we're, we really want to view this as like a, a platform for, for, building something that is a sustainable model for media and we're not sure how we're going to get there you know we're 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 early in this about 18 months and um you know we have seen an incredible growth like time time sensitive is um you know uh (laughs) nearing a million downloads in in a, Mm. a year and a half um so we're feeling like we we're building something substantial, but again, it's like baby steps bit by bit. And, um, so that, that's my big focus. Um, I also have a couple things I can't publicly say, <laughs> say yet, um, you know, brew, brewing on the fight in front. And I do a little bit of mm. freelance writing. Um, uh, I'm a contributing editor at town and country magazine. So mm-hmm. covers some architecture and design. And again, that's, that's sort of an, a way to communicate uh, and write about architecture and design to an audience that doesn't typically um, think about that at the fore of their minds. And um, Hodinkee magazine, the watch magazine, I've, oh, been, yeah. I've been writing about design and architecture a bit for them. Um, I did a, a feature on Noguchi Zakari light sculptures, a profile mm, of mm-hmm. Mira Nakashima, um, who's carrying her father's legacy forward while also carving a name out yeah. for herself. And, um, the restoration of Eileen Gray's E1027 house. I, I covered that oh, right. for them. And uh, in their, their issue this fall, I uh, wrote a piece on the restoration of the Rothko Chapel in Houston. Oh, nice. So they've become this really great platform for me to go deep into um, kind of historical. Um, yeah. Yeah. Historical design writing, which has been really, really fun. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess that's on the whole, that's sort of where my mind is at is, is really deep in the slowdown. And, um, uh, we're, we're exploring several other platforms and potential podcasts, uh, for 2021. Um, so oh, nice. those are kind of in early stage development and, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see kind of where things go, but, um, we we have we have an idea f- that this is this is just the beginning and and yeah. understand that there's really great potential for what it is that we're building. Yeah, I love that. Uh, my last question is: I just want to know what you're reading right now. Mm. I'll, I'll I'll say that um, I'm not really reading design books. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I was not expecting a design answer for this question. Um, Everybody always says that when I ask that question. Yeah. Uh, I guess since the start of the pandemic, I've probably read around eight or nine books. So like one a month. Um, okay. And right as I was finishing in memory of, I, um, I was reading, uh, or I had, I had just finished reading the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk, mm-hmm. which I've mm-hmm. been telling everyone, um, who's interested or dealing with trauma which is basically all of us let's face it um (laughs) to read this book and it's it's not surprisingly been on the new york times bestseller list for quite a while um and i i quote and reference the book in the introduction to in memory of because um he talks about how uh, after the vietnam war 
the labeling of PTSD and the understanding of trauma really came to the fore in a way that it had not before. And I think that that really impacted memorial making. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know, for all of us going through this crazy um, experience of the pandemic, I definitely recommend that book. Um, I've also been turning to and reading all of Rebecca Solnit's books. Um, (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Like A Paradise Built in Hell, was incredibly inspiring i actually Mm -hmm. um uh it was uh on at a distance our first episode with bill mckibben he mentioned oh right he mentions that book and i was just like i have to go get this book um and when i ordered it it was uh, um it it was back ordered because so many people Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the Mm -hmm. pandemic were ordering it um it's it's a book that's ultimately about human resilience and how we can rise up for the better in moments of disaster i would say it's actually there there's an element of design writing in that book yeah yeah for sure um, i'm currently on hope in the dark uh Mm -hmm. which you know though it was largely written about things going on 15 20 25 years ago it's so timely right now yeah um and um Rebecca's writing on feminism, the environment, politics, art, and and also importantly, memory. Um, all of it, I think, is is just so profound. Like, she might be my favorite contemporary writer. Um, yeah, sounds sounds right. <laughs> I also just finished uh, the Unreality of Memory by Elisa Gabbert. Um, it's another oh. it's another book that goes into disaster and unpacks the complexity of remembering. So that's that's one that I would recommend. And I'm about halfway through Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, which I'm really, oh, yeah. really enjoying. It's about America's great migration. And I really want to read her next book, um, or her newest book, Cast. Um, yeah, that's on my list after too. After that. Um, but I mean, I could tell you a bunch of design writers I like too. <laughs> yeah, go. F- yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's hear them. Um, well, it's inter- I think design writing is interesting because I, I define it quite broadly. But, um, you know, I think top of my list is Michael Kimmelman, who came came to design writing through art. And I know that people some people view him as like, oh, he's not a true architecture critic. What whatever that means, like. I think his writing on cities and community development and equity, public space, urban design, it's it's really I mean, he's he's thoughtfully showing how architecture is expansive, not how it's a building on a pedestal. And, you know, he's 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 a classically trained pianist and it it shows in his work like there's a beauty and a grace and a musicality to his writing. Like um, I also think as an art critic, you know, he was so exceptional and when I interviewed him for time sensitive, I went so deep into the archive. Um, yeah, I actually, his, his first lead ever for the times was time has generally been a good editor. <laughs> that was like the most fortuitous fodder for an yeah. opening of an interview. I think I've ever found. That's awesome. Um, you know, I'm sure listeners on this podcast are familiar with Alexandra Lang. Um, yep. I, she was my second uh, interview oh, ever for fantastic. this podcast. Yeah. Her book, Writing About Architecture, really helped shape a lot of my Me thinking. Me too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Adamson is someone I really admire. Yeah. You know, he wrote the ultimate takedown of Mark Newsom's Gagosian show last year in Freeze magazine. Right. right. I remember that. And uh, I loved his book, Fewer Better Things, which came out right as Andrew and I were getting the slowdown going. And it, it relates mm-hmm. to so much of what Andrew and I are doing, but but it's kind of coming more from a design and craft perspective. Um you know, to state the obvious, Paul Goldberger, you know, yep. building up and tearing down was really informative uh, to me. And I, even more obvious probably uh, to everyone is Robert Caro's The Power Broker. Like oh, yeah. <laughs> the summer b- yeah. before entering Columbia Journalism School, at least when I was there, we had to read The Power Broker. It was like a, a way. Of, oh, wow. It, this The school had it as like a way of familiarizing new students with New York City and, and the techniques of investigative mm. reporting. So, you know, Carol's level of research is something to aspire to, even though I yeah. will never, ever reach that kind of obsessive I fastidiousness. I can try. I, I guess I can try. Um, and then two other writers who just always, like, for me, I... I just really, um, you know, find they're on the periphery of what we might term design writing, but I think that they really um, uh, capture something that's true. And and one is Edmund DeWall. Um, oh, I just bought his book. Yeah. Uh, it's the next on my list. Yeah. The the hair, the hair with the amber eyes. Yeah, I just yeah. bought that last week. Yeah, I mean, he's not a design writer per se, but like, you know, I think The White Road could certainly be considered design writing mm. or at least craft writing. Um, and then uh, Leonard Coran, who we just had on a- yeah. at a distance. Yeah. He's the founder of Wet Magazine. And um, I love his book, Wabi Sabi, and his newest mm-hmm. book, Musings of a Curious Aesthete is is a fun read leonard just boils things down into really simple fun sentences and makes you know he he describes what it is to be an artist in a way that i find incredibly relatable um i agree you know his writing is so refreshingly spare and minimalist and i don't often associate the word aesthetic with writing but with Mm. leonard's prose i would um so that's sort of like that's like a long reading list, I know. Um, but no, that was great. <laughs> and and my that final was... my final obsession would probably be um, you know Noguchi. I have a big library of Noguchi books at home, and I'm constantly turning to those and constantly thinking about Noguchi's work in the context of who we are, how we got here, where we're going. Um, I really don't think there's too many uh, figures quite as relevant as Noguchi, and and unpacking all of that. That was such a great list, and I feel like we could talk for another hour just about Noguchi, because um, uh, I feel the same way about him that that you do. Um, this conversation was so interesting to me. I, I found the book so profound and moving and really enjoyed it. And as a podcaster, I get asked all the time about like what podcasts I listen to, and the fact is I don't actually listen to that many podcasts. And since the pandemic, I like can't listen to podcasts anymore unless I'm <laughs> running. Uh, but the podcast that has has sustained me running over the last uh, eight months is at a distance. It's the one that I recommend to everybody. And so I am a fan of that and, and time sensitive uh, as well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was so great. Thanks, Jared. This is a pleasure. This episode was recorded on October 19th, 2020. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingsurface.fm. Thanks.
Thanks for listening. 